The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, welcome to everybody. Everybody's probably getting back uh, from the big show yesterday, the big eclipse show. We were traveling from Minnesota, so we didn't get to see it. I didn't yeah, even know. Yeah, a little notice. cloudy in Wisconsin. Where yeah, we were. I just I didn't even notice any difference. But people were talking around here about how the highways were clogged up. We got back last night, but so we're back. This is Paul Rudy. This is Paul Rudy's on the Money Radio. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, Dr. Fred Gertz uh, announced to me this morning that he's on a cruise, having a little more fun than we are, so he won't be here today, but I have certified financial planner professionals David Rudy and Paul Rudy with me today. Good morning, boys. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Uh, I'm happy to have you uh, bail me out here. So uh, that's a long <laughs> 10, 11 hours. Yeah, I was going to say, we're just one we're and a half shaking off vacation a little bit right now, so if <laughs> yeah. we're a little slow, we may just be a give us foggy. Yeah. Uh, you can call in with your questions at 217-356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your question to talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. So get that out of the way. And I think today's theme is going to be, I don't maybe it's just a coincidence uh, or, or Paul was just bored. But uh, with all the students coming back and the school year beginning for the little ones, because uh, we have the little ones we have to think about you know, down the road for college and how we're going to do that. So we're going to talk a little bit about five or quite a bit about 529 plans, kind of the ins and outs, what the good choices are, uh, and kind of everything surrounded about that. A little bit on the Coverdell, uh, you know, it's kind of an educational uh, savings account. And we're going to talk about kind of in that theme of, you know, how do we pay for all these kiddies stuff, uh, teaching children about money. And then finally, we're going to follow up with our retirement seminar invite later in the day that one's been really popular um, I'll get into the uh, details of that well I normally have dr. Fred here to talk about things uh, economics uh, but I, I noticed there's this survey that's been done since 2014 by the Federal Reserve that's uh, the New York Federal Reserve that does this study it's been conducted since 2014 but they published it for the first time on Monday and it was kind of I guess a little bit you know, showing, I guess it was somewhat showing that basically U.S. workers have low hopes for higher pay. So when it comes down to pay, so in this survey, uh, it says U.S. workers see little hope for higher paychecks while they are increasingly searching for new jobs. They expect fewer offers to fall in their laps, according to a Federal Reserve survey published Monday. It's a one of a kind study. Uh, it's going to be published three times a year, but it paints kind of a gloomy picture of U.S. workers' aspirations. Uh, this is even in the face of an unemployment rate of 4.4%. It's a 16-year low, guys, and uh, eight years of an economic recovery. But <coughs> it basically goes around the country and measures wages. National wages have shown only modest growth. But I thought it was interesting that it showed in July the lowest annual salary the people that were surveyed would accept a new uh, except in a new job would be 57960 down from 59660 only four months earlier. I guess that's, you know, that is a bit of a decline, but I, I got to admit, I guess I was a little surprised by that number being pretty close to 60000 as people's kind of minimum expectations. And when they were asked what salary uh, they expected in job offers over the next four months, the average response declined to 50790 So, uh, and that's down from almost 55000 um, when it was taken in March. So I guess that does show, and it's kind of odd, I, I keep calling this the plow horse economy. You know, it's kind of the 2% economy. Um, certainly not a thoroughbred status yet, and it doesn't even seem to be that much in sight, but you never know. Uh, but you would think uh, we see a stock market that triples off its bottom, you know, we get past the recession eight or nine years later. And uh, you, you would just expect when you hear the 4.4% unemployment number, 16-year low, I think that's why we've had callers from time to time come in. And if we talk about the economy doing reasonably well, I think it's just kind of mixed notions out there that just, just this isn't, 
I can remember, I have the benefit of age, if there are much and many benefits of age. Um, but I remember in the early 80s after coming out, basically a really bad recessionary period. One, what we had was called stagflation then. We had high rates of inflation, low growth in the economy. It was really tough. And that was kind of in the mid-60s to the late 70s and very early 80s. And then when we did have the next economic boom, it was really, really strong growth. And you knew it and you could feel it. And the stock market ran from 1,000 to almost 14,000 between 2000 and, I mean, between 1982 and 2000. It certainly had a much different feeling to it. So I guess it is clear from this plow horse status that, People just just aren't, you know, feeling it. They're not feeling it. And uh, I just thought that was kind of an interesting study that uh, was published for the first time. And I also noticed that uh, you're seeing a lot in the headlines about, and again, we're not going to stick to this economic theme uh, much longer, but Fred was here. This is one I really want to cover, and maybe I will a little bit next time. But a couple of economists uh, from the London School of Economics uh, studied 35 years of government census data for their working paper, which was released in August, People versus Machines, the Impact of Minimum Wages on Automatable Jobs. And, you know, you hear the president, uh, I'm not going to be political here, but, you know, there's a lot of talk in the election about how we're going to bring jobs back. But I think people didn't realize, or a lot of times they don't realize, a lot of the impact and why a lot of the manufacturing jobs and a lot of certain jobs have gone away is more about automation than anything. Well, they show there's new evidence that raising a minimum wage pushes business owners to replace school. This I'm reading from their article, low-skilled workers with automation. Uh, it says particularly old, young, female, and African-American low-skilled workers face the highest levels of unemployment after a minimum wage increase. And that's based on data from 1980 to 2015. We find the increasing minimum wage decreases significantly the share of automa automatable employment held by low-skilled workers. So when you think about it, I now I go into the grocery store, it seems like in some of them there's as many self-checkout uh, lines as there are, and then we think about assembly line workers, uh, more and more replaced by robotic arms, etc. And I just thought it was interesting. We, and finally, I'll, I'll and then I'll move on. We find that a significant number of individuals who were previously in automatable employment are unemployed in the period following a minimum wage increase. So, I'm not arguing pro or con. I just thought it was an interesting study that begins to put a little bit light on it. That the while it's intuitively appealing to have higher minimum wages and again i'm not going to get into the pros and cons of it because that's just a debate that we get to hear on tv 24 hours a day anyway so it's but i thought it was just to me it kind of makes sense that if a job can be automated the more you increase labor cost the more you're likely to automate and we're cert certainly seeing that and uh i think that makes sense intuitively but i think it's cool that there's now actually research that shows specifically who it impacts because i think you know one of these one of the issues of minimum wage increases is they're done with the grandest of intentions they really want to help out these people but if you judge them by the results they may end up harming some people that you're intending to help so you really kind of have to weigh both sides of it just kind of an interesting you know two sides of the same coin kind right of thing. and of course there's two compelling arguments uh that you hear all the time and again we're we're not here to promote one or the other just you know, we, we just read so much about automation. And then I think this even ties into that. Uh, we have a very low unemployment rate of 4.4%, a 16-year low, but it's not everybody getting to participate, you know, at the same way. And it appears that maybe minimum wage increases uh, maybe have a surprising, maybe to some people not so surprising impact. Uh, but maybe it's why a lot of people are still in a funk and still so frustrated from an economic and a standard of living, you know, that I think a lot of people are feeling like they're slipping backwards. Uh, well, so let's get on to our uh, 529 plans. We're going to, it's uh, back to the school season. So again, we're going to talk about edu education funding and teaching children about money. And, and guys, over my career of 33 years, you know, we're, pr we're pr predominantly retirement planning focused, but it doesn't mean for a radio show, we have to have knowledge about all these other issues that maybe aren't directly we don't directly think about as a retiree but we're seeing more and more grandparents helping with the education of their jan uh, grandchildren uh, and so it, this really can impact families from you know young ages to multi-generational well and i was kind of thinking before the show what's well, kind of funny you think of educating children for their own benefit but 
I've seen a lot of people that once they're in their 50s or 60s and even retirement that are uh, basically supporting their adult children because they don't have good financial habits or good kind of they don't make good decisions around um, purchasing or investing or whatever it may be. So it's like almost for your own selfish reasons, I think it makes sense to spend some time educating your children and we're going to talk about some of some of the things yeah, you I can think, do. Yeah, I, I think uh, for some of them that means a formal education uh, post high school. Uh, so and that's not for everybody, you know, but then you start thinking about also the other part of that education we're going to talk about today is just getting kids by the time, you know, they're young adults to understand certain basic concepts, time value of money, compounding which goes hand in hand with the time value of money uh just how to budget uh, how to think about purchases from a terms of you can't just look at what it costs you today you have to look at the impact or think about the impact and you need to be able to connect those dots but you have to have a framework to connect those dots i mean if 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 you don't understand how compounding works it's hard to it's really hard to know what this is really costing me from a future lifestyle standpoint so so we're going to do all that. So, Paul, you recently wrote a blog about using 529s to pay for college, which you can read on our blog page at rudywealth.com. It's a, it was a really good, I thought it was going to be very helpful for people. So I know this is fresh in your minds, but to you, why is college planning in advance using something like a 529 plan? Why is that such a big issue that made you want to write a blog about it? Well, I think uh, with college costs getting so high these days, you can't really just kind of think about it the year before and anticipate that you're going to have enough money showing up every single year to write checks for college. So you really need to do some planning in advance. And just to kind of give some ideas as to the magnitude um, of the expenses you're going to be paying, um, I looked at a recent survey in college pricing. It was done by the college board. They do a lot of surveys. They do them every year. And uh, this year, for just tuition and fees alone at an in-state school, for a uh, for an in-state student, it's around ten thousand dollars. For that same university, for an outer state out of state student, it's around twenty five thousand. And that's a public college. And that's a public one. So yeah, those who I guess you could say lucky, or I guess unlucky from the people who's paying for it perspective, um, they are going to be paying around thirty three, thirty four thousand per year uh, in just tuition and fees. So I mean, this is before you add in another ten to eleven thousand for housing and meals, another. You know, three to five thousand for, you know, supplies and transportation, things like that. Laptops. I mean, you're getting into a total cost that's, you know, in in twenty five to fifty thousand dollar range, and very very few people have the income showing up where they can just part with an extra right. twenty five thousand dollars for four years in a row. I yeah. mean, that's a cash huge, flowing. It's really right. Uh, very few people are going to be able to cash flow pay for that, and it comes with after tax money that you've. You know that you have to first pay taxes on it. You know, then you have to live, and then you have to, you know, push out twenty-five to fifty thousand a year. And obviously, there's other alternatives. There's there's pathways from a two-year university to a four-year. I know you had friends that are CPAs now that did that through the Parkland Pathways. I think is what it's called. I may be mistaken on that. Uh, so there are some other workarounds. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Cool. Uh, Go ahead, and, and you think not only are the costs already high, but they're actually increasing at a rate significantly higher than the rate of just inflation. You know, I think historically, and I don't remember what time horizon this. I would includes, say over the last couple of decades, but I know the inflation rate has been somewhere around like six yeah. percent since like the nineteen eighties or nineties. And it, and it looks, you know, and I think there's a lot of thought that look that cannot continue. We can't have one of the you know, okay, an education for our children going up at 6 or 7% a year. You're talking about a doubling every 10 to 12 years in cost. And it, it basically outruns most people's ability to do that. Now, we're, I, I noticed uh, a statistic that last year uh, around the country that cost only rose, I think, less by 2% uh, for most. I think that I, I don't remember what the what they were surveying, if it was just public schools or just college education period. So it does appear that you know, some of that pressure that we've seen, the 6% compounding increasing rate, and again, uh, you know, that's a every 12 years, the cost doubling. And so you think about your child's lifetime, you know, it's going to double once and then, you know, go up another 50% perhaps in there just before, the eight years before college. Pretty, it's a, it's a really, 
it's a really big deal, and I think it is why we see so many uh, grandparents funding 529 plans. And so we're going to talk a bit about 529 plans. So in simple terms, guys, what is a 529 plan? So I think of a 529 plan as basically a, a tax advantage savings vehicle uh, that can be used for college expenses. And uh, in more concrete terms, the way it works is you contribute money to your 529 plan, and that's after-tax money. So it's, you know, you've already paid taxes on it. Okay. You've contributed that money. And then it will continue to grow in that 529 plan tax-deferred, so you're not paying taxes on dividends and interest and things as you go. And then when you pull the money out, assuming it's for qualified education expenses, then all of the withdrawals that you take are completely tax-free. And we're going to talk about what the qualified expenses are here in a bit. Uh, now, what about for people in Illinois? There's a, there are some form of tax, you know, favorable treatment for people that are contributing into a 529 plan. Right. Even beyond just the um, normal benefits, I guess, at a national level that I talked about, in Illinois, you can get a state income tax deduction. Uh, and that's basically, it's $10,000 per person. So for a joint filing couple, you could get an in, a state income tax deduction up to $20,000 if you contributed $20,000. Right, and so say just rounding up to a 5% state of Illinois tax, that might be a $1,000 benefit. So I think that's meaningful. Um, and the most common are what, 529 college savings plan? Yeah, so there there are different types, and I think that's that confuses people sometimes. So there's 529 college savings plan, which is what I just described. Um, and then even within that, there are the plans that are sold uh, to the end investor, and then there are plans that are sold through financial advisors, and I think that's called the Bright Directions right, plan. Bright Directions is through yeah. a broker or an advisor. Right, um, and they both have good investment options. I think most people can go just straight to getting a, a Bright Start 529 by themselves. You can I do sign too. up online. Um, and you just Google Illinois State, you know, college 529 plans, and you'll get right to the yeah. Illinois site. And then there's a prepaid tuition plan, which, as the name implies, you're basically purchasing kind of future tuition now. You're buying it by the semester, and you're locking in the cost. So, you are you know, you can go to a school in Illinois, at least, let's say. You can go to outside of Illinois, but it's going to be based on Illinois' determination of what the tuition rises have been or increases have been. And you know, so if you have uh, four semesters locked up, uh, oh, a child's born today, 18 years from now or so, uh, basically they say, okay, you're welcome. And you have your first four semesters are taken care of, uh, just not the last uh, four semesters. Right. And I think that those seem to be a little less popular just from what I've seen. And I think just even for well, practical reasons, I mean, most people don't have that lump sum of money that they can use to, to prepay the tuition necessarily well, all and not only that and i talked about this years ago i loved the idea of the prepaid tuition plan but it looked to me actuarially it wasn't doable and you know, it wasn't but a few years ago where there was real concern and i'm not even sure how it all ended up uh there was a re there were real problems with that prepaid tuition there were a lot of people worried about whether it was going to be there when they needed it so that's more of that okay you're letting them manage it you're sending them your money and you're just buying those you don't hear much about it today. You hear no. much more about the, the, the where you're contributing your money and investing it in a variety of platforms, mutual funds typically, uh, and that. So, uh, so what about the, like, so in order for the withdrawals to receive favorable tax treatment, we talked about that, they must be used to pay for, you mentioned, qualified education expenses. What, so what's that include? What does it not include? It's a pretty broad definition, which is good because all of these expenses really do add to the true expenses of college, but it includes tuition and fees. It includes books, which can be a big expense these days, uh, computer technology and equipment, including internet access, special needs equipment, and some room and board expenses. Um, I'm not a, an expert on what counts towards room and board and what doesn't, but it says in the description, you know, some room and board expenses. I think the sticking point is the student needs to be at least um, like a 50% of the time student or something like that. I think so. Something like that. Lives on campus more than 50% of the time. There's something about over half the time. Yeah, you have there. to be a full-time student. And then if 
you don't use the funds for qualified education expenses, there is actually a penalty. So the way... So tell us about that. The way that works, and I think sometimes people get really nervous about this, but um, for most people, it's really not a huge issue. But if you don't use them for qualified expenses, um, the earnings portion, so you can always get the amount that you contributed back tax-free because you put in after-tax right. dollars. Um, but the amount that things have grown, the earnings portion, will be taxed at your ordinary income rate plus a 10% penalty. So you do have a penalty if you don't use that, but there are some exceptions. And I well, think- Well, before you even get to the exception, and exceptions, not, but if one child does, decides not to go to college and use it, you can transfer it essentially to another child or another family member and still maintain that tax-free status. So it's not as if, it's, if that child, particular child beneficiary doesn't go, then it's transferable. So maybe not all is lost. Yeah, and frankly, I just- I don't think there's very many people in the country who are overfunding 529 plans um, just unnecessarily. I mean, because college is such a huge expense, you have to be in a pretty good financial position to do that. I agree. And I think when you're determining how much to contribute, you want to take that into consideration. And maybe you give yourself a little bit of buffer room just in case returns are really good and you don't necessarily want more. But that'd be a, a, a high-class problem, as you call it, You know, right. if you contribute more and you have really great investment returns for the first 18 years of your child's lifetime and you have a little extra in your 529 plan well that's kind of nice and if you're doing the if you're really thinking about this in a deliberate way you know there's ways to keep that from happening you can you know you can quit funding it you know once you if, if you have an advisor that's one of the benefits of having an advisor which doesn't mean you have to use the advisor side and pay you know, commissions, and I'm not suggesting that, but if you have a financial planner or an advisor or an independent person that can basically tell you when to stop contributing and try to try to make it so that you're slide in with pretty close to, you know, using it all up, I think that would make some sense. Are there any exceptions to the penalty rule? Yeah, so, I mean, they're mostly common sense, but if the beneficiary dies, they're not going to penalize you for having saved money in a 529 plan and then having your child die. Um, or if they become disabled and can't go to college. And then the last one's receiving a scholarship. So if someone receives a scholarship, so you get a full scholarship, right. you can pull the money out, I think, in an equivalent amount to the right. scholarship so that they receive. So if you get a 20,000-year scholarship, that's 20,000 a year you can pull out without the, the, right. without the penalties. Which just, I mean, reading those, I think that makes complete common sense to me. It's There are certain things that you can't plan for, um, you don't know in advance that those are going to happen. They're not going to penalize you <laughs> in situations like that. So there's three, basically, 529 plans. Um, there's the two college savings program and the one prepaid tuition. Uh, the two college savings plans, is it fair to say those are the most common? Yeah, for sure. So I see those a lot more often than I see the prepaid tuition plans. And I see the... Um, Direct the Bright Start plan that's just sold directly right. to the end investor uh, being a lot more popular option. I think sometimes people probably choose the advisor sold option because they think, well, I don't know how to invest that money. I mean, what right. do I do? I'm not an investment expert. And saving for college is almost an even more unique challenge than saving for retirement because you have a pretty short time horizon. You know, you have 18 years if you start right away. Um, that's kind of a a more unique time horizon to deal with. There's a wider distribution sure. of outcomes in terms of expected returns over 18 years than there is over 40 or 50. But, um, but when I look at the plan, uh, it's not as overwhelming as one might think. If you go uh, and look at that Bright Start savings plan where you get online, it literally took me, for my first grandchild, it took me, I don't know, five minutes to get it opened and even funded. Yep. Uh, but then you go to the choices. It's not so overwhelming if you just don't stress out about it. And if a person, I've always used the Vanguard index age-based portfolios. So if your child's one to five, they're going to buy the you know that one to five-year-old portfolio and use Vanguard. And it's extremely inexpensive. As I call it, I say it's almost free. It's not technically free, but the costs associated with the Vanguard index models are exceptionally low. And if, if people just, it's worth saving the high commissions on the Bright Directions plans and doing it yourself. And before you give up and, and go to a, a, an advisor and pay commissions or how, or whatever, try the going direct and the Bright Start side. 
and just using the Vanguard. You, know, you might want to talk to your own advisor if you have one, but that's I don't think that's so overwhelming. Right. For most people, I think that's going to be the, the best option. Um, one thing that's worth mentioning is they actually updated Illinois' 529 plan recently. Um, so one of the benefits that's just a benefit for everyone is the costs are lower. And it was already a low-cost yeah, plan, but now they're extremely low-cost. Um, and then those age-based options, they actually have three different options now. So they'll have an aggressive one, a moderate one, and a conservative one. They all operate the same way from kind of a philosophical standpoint. They're starting out with a higher percentage in equities. They're transitioning as the child grows nearer and nearer to their freshman year towards more and more in bonds. But the aggressive just basically starts out more aggressive and ends a little more aggressive and moderate, obviously, kind of somewhere in between there. And the conservative one's going to start out with a little more in bonds. Um, I wouldn't get too hung up on that. You know, I've been thinking a lot about saving for college and, well, really investing for college. And I don't know that there really is a perfect solution or a perfect glide path for your asset allocation. I would just choose one that you're comfortable with, probably like the moderate or the ag aggressive, if I had to recommend one. I think if a child's zero to 10 years old, uh, throughout the zero to 10 time frame, and again, there's no, you said there's no optimal, and uh, in, 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 in that 10-year time period can be different. Every 10-year time period is going to be different from an outcome. But it would seem to me that you would predominantly want to move towards most, if not all, of the money in a one of the... You know, broad index, stock index, mutual funds, or by using that earliest tranche of the Vanguard, you know, index portfolio would seem to be reasonable to me for the first 10 years. Yep. And and so that's why usually when we're working with our clients, we're picking the aggressive version of that. Right. I think it makes sense to start out predominantly in equities. And then as you get closer, you really do want the vast majority in fixed income because, you know, if you're one year away from college, who knows what the market's going to do over that time period. Um, but they all do a good job of really having p the vast majority of your portfolio and money market funds and fixed income by the time college really hits. I think so. And again, that's why I'm always attracted to that Vanguard. And, uh, and I want to get back to some of those additional changes here. But uh, we do have a text on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line. By the way, you can text at 351-5357. And uh, it's uh, from Mike. It's a listener. It says, if I contribute to a college fund which I take it Mike's talking about a 529 yep. plan and live in Illinois. Do I have to use it towards an Illinois school? That's a great question because we get that all the time and it's a concern that people have. So I'm glad you brought it up. Um, the answer is no, you don't have to stay within Illinois or go to an Illinois college. You can actually go anywhere in the nation with your Illinois 529 plan. Um, the Illinois one just tends to, it turns out, is one of the best 529 plans in the country. It's so. gone from one of the worst uh, years ago when it first came out, in my view, my opinion, yep. one of the worst, to certainly one of the top 529 plans in the country. And, right. And, and Mike Frerichs, the state treasurer, I think, took a plan that was one of the best in the country and made it even better. Yeah. It, tell us a little bit about that. What, what was it? So they cut expenses? Yeah, so there's... There's going to be a management fee for any type of 529 plan or basically the fee for just the plan. Right, the administration you know, not, costs. Not the investment right. expenses or anything. And I think that was cut in half. And I don't remember the I exact numbers. But, yeah, it was a pretty significant. It's a small amount of money at, at the same time, and they still made it smaller by cutting it in half. I want to think it was $25 a year or something, and now it's maybe half that. It's getting to the point where the, the expenses are almost negligible. I mean, they're very, very low. And if you look... There's a, a website I should actually mention. It's called Saving for College, I think, .com or .org, but just it's Google Saving for College. And it compares all of the 529 plans. It compares prepaid tuition plans. It has tons of articles and information about saving for education and the different account types of accounts you can use and the pros and cons. Um, but it, it rates the different plans so that you can kind of compare Illinois to other ones, and they give Illinois a very high rating. And, and states compete, don't they? They do, um, and I, I'm sure that's why Illinois is trying to continually improve their plan because, you know, they want people to use the Illinois 529 plan. Um, one of the, the questions we get sometimes is, well, if I have, like, we deal with a lot of grandparents that right. want to contribute to their grandchildren's 529 plans, but their children live in different states. Right. And then it's, well, which one should I contribute to? <clears throat> and I say, 
I still think most of the time they should probably open an Illinois 529 plan and contribute to that. Right. Particularly for the state income tax deduction, yeah. but also because we just have better investment options, lower costs, lower cost investment options than most other plans. There are some other really good states out there. Um, but then if your children ask you that question, you're going to want to look at their state's plan and see, well, does that state offer a state income tax deduction? Some do, some don't. And you want to look at, okay, what's in their best interest? And I, I'm pretty sure you could have two different 529 plans for the same beneficiary. So your children's contributions could go to one and sure. yours could go to the Illinois. So, uh, but then they broadened the selection of the funds, didn't they? Most recently, along with those fee cuts? <laughs> they did. They added a lot of different mutual funds. Um, like you said, we still typically use the Vanguard index fund option. But if you wanted to use more of an actively managed strategy, um, they have funds from uh, like Nuveen Asset Management was one, BlackRock, T. Rowe Price. Dimensional Fund Advisors, where I worked, actually, they picked up a couple of, of Dimensionals funds. Um, you know, I told most of our clients I don't, I don't really see the, the need to make any changes, but it does give you a little extra flexibility. Like if you said, I don't want to follow just the generic age-based approach. I'm going to recreate kind of my own strategy. Right. You could do that with... Uh, small cap value tilt, for example, if that's what you wanted to do and be a little more aggressive in the stock portion of your portfolio using the DFA funds and some of those other funds that uh, are available to you. That's probably best left to people that have really can drill down to a pretty good concept of the pros and the cons of doing that. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, for sure. Like That's why I really don't recommend most people do that. But for the people who are really financially savvy and know what they're doing, I guess it's nice to at least provide that option. Options are always good to have. And so we have a lot of technical aspects of 529 plans and general ways to think about using these plans, but what are some other important things uh, that you guys can talk about for people to consider when it comes to this whole concept of funding for college education? Well, David mentioned it early, but just the fact that historically, at least, the rate at which college costs are increasing is, is closer to 6%. It's right. higher than the general rate of inflation, and that can run away from you pretty quickly over an 18-year period. So you really need to consider that in your planning. Is that, that ultimately comes down to, uh, and we're not saying, and I'm not certainly suggesting that it's going to be 6%, but it's going to be an inflationary component, component which means a couple of things to me, uh, starting out with a child at a very young age and fixed income, just because it's deemed safe by a lot of people, is really going to struggle just because of that inflation cost. And that's that maybe that's more, is that more of a reason, do you think, to consider using one of the stock index mutual funds or the Vanguard age base because they're going to be inclined to have heavier amounts or allocations to the as I call them, the great companies of America and the world or the stock market. You know, I almost jumped in when you guys were talking about that earlier because that's a huge, yeah, that's a huge point. If the rate of inflation is 6% and your rate of return isn't keeping up with that, your goal is still kind of running away from you. Right. And so uh, it's been certainly a, an important component and planning issue is the, the inflationary rate of college. Hopefully that is going to settle down. And, and there's, there's some big thinkers out there that think the cost of college is going to decline over time. So I think between these uh, giant online courses now being organized by some of the best and brightest faculty in the world, um, I could certainly, I think I sit here at age almost 58 um, and I see my daughter and son-in-law a little, I don't say stressed about college, but they know it's a big number uh, heading towards them in about 17 years. I'm more inclined to think that it's probably going to stabilize and kind of calm down the, the cost of education. I, th I think it's going to be, I can well, just imagine that 17 years from now, uh, m maybe, and maybe this is, maybe that's too soon, but I can see where a lot of four-year four college physical campuses go away. I, I don't know why I feel that way. I just feel like if the best and the brightest, you know, if you can be taught by Gene Fama, I don't know if you can, up at the University of Chicago, your basic investments class or, you know, it's just going to have a lot of appeal, and I think that's going to take an edge off the rising costs. I don't know. How you well, and frankly, I mean, if it keeps compounding at six percent, it's going to get to the point where only the wealthiest people in the U.S. can even afford to go to college. Unless, I mean, the probably the next thing I was actually going to talk about is for the people who are getting kind of stressed out about saving for college. For the people who are still parents, they're not in the grandparent phase yet. We talked a lot about using five twenty nines, 
but you don't necessarily need to fund 100% of the college expenses by having that set aside in 529 plan. I think it's important to remember that there are other additional ways to help cover those costs. And usually, I think from the vast majority of people, it's a combination of multiple sources that end up funding college. Do you think, just kind of just talking out loud for a minute, and I'm probably interrupting your train of thought, but it strikes me, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm getting older, that it's almost everybody seems it's just a right. And maybe, and a lot of people do feel it's a right to go to a a four-year college. but a lot of kids that really can't afford it, I think, get over their skis because, uh, let's face it, most parents are going to have a very difficult time. It's just it's just gotten so costly to just to pay for the majority or even maybe half of it. And you see them coming out with, I think this loan thing that is overblown when you really get down to the statistics. But there's still a lot of kids that we know that have large college loan balances. And I know that's going to be one of your suggestions that you know you have that as mm-hmm. an avenue. But do you think there's been a little, uh, I don't know, it's come off the rails a little bit that, that there's a lot of students that maybe get degrees that aren't going to be high-paying degrees. They know it going into it and are borrowing way too much money to do that. I completely agree, and I think that's one of the things that will potentially slow the rise in costs a little bit as people start to really just do the cost-benefit analysis. Hey, if I view college education as an investment, right. how much am I paying into this investment for my education versus how much in incremental income am I going to receive because of that? And once you start doing that math, you can kind of objectively look at it and say, hey, you know, college X may not be in my best interest compared to college Y because of the cost-benefit factor. So what you're saying, Dave, is, you know, look, it may be even unrealistic to think if you have more than one child or even one child, but certainly the more children you have that may contemplate college, um, you're probably going to come up short. Right. And so then the question is, what do we do to basically fill in the shortfall? And I wrote down a list of some of the options that people have. But one thing to keep in mind, especially for people who have been contributing every single year to a 529 plan is you can take that money that you were saving and now pay out of current pay that to current college expenses. So some of it can be funded just out of your existing cash flow while your children so are in college. So if you're putting $500 a month away year after year, now it's time for college. You're not funding it anymore from a 529 plan necessarily standpoint, or maybe you're still putting it in the 529 plan to get the deduction. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like you're saying that cash flow is already kind of in your budget. So there's another 6000 that can go towards paying the tuition, et cetera. Right. You're not going to miss it because you're you're not used to having it. It's been uh, basically set aside for 18 plus years or however long you've been saving. So, did you, did, did you guys or do you have a lot of friends that you graduated with that ended up with pretty large college, you know, loan balances, or was it? Is that far enough ago where that wasn't the case? No, and I mean, just from my own personal experience, I graduated in 2011, and I have friends that still have material balances that they really, you know, over time have been able to pay the interests or the minimum payments, but haven't really been able to chip away at the principal. So, I mean, unless you really get after that, it can it can last long into your life. Do you think a good rule of thumb, if you're going to borrow money uh, for college education, is don't borrow more in total? than what you anticipate as your yearly salary. So if you if you take a job where you're going to come out and you're going to be earning 30000 you probably shouldn't end up with more than a $30,000 loan balance. If you're in a field, you know, engineering or finance, and you might come out at sixty or 75000 a year, maybe maybe that's a more reasonable. It strikes me that that's a that's, – I, I don't like rules of thumb, but if I had to have a rule of thumb, I'd say figure out what you're likely to make and don't borrow more than that. Yeah, and whether that's the exact amount or not, I think the the principle there is the higher income you're going to earn as a result of going to get whatever degree you get, the more you can borrow. So like uh, the best example of this is if you're going to go and you're going to become a specialized surgeon, yeah, you can afford to borrow a whole lot because you're going to be making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and you're going to be able to pay that off. But if you're going to college and you're going to be... In, I don't know, just something that typically general psychology major, sociology, you know, something that doesn't lead or grade school teacher that doesn't lead to really high, you know, higher 
maybe rewards otherwise, but financially, maybe the rewards aren't there. Then maybe if that's the case, you don't go to a private school that costs 50000 a year and have $200,000 of debt, then get out and make $35,000 a year. But I see so many people huge. doing that. Who's, how come somebody's not tapping some of these young people on the shoulder and saying, look, if you're going to take that major at that school, you're going to make 28000 a year tops. It doesn't make sense for you to have a $75,000 loan. Who's, somebody has to say it. The problem is their parents went to school so long ago that I think the issue wasn't as pronounced. You know, you could borrow a little bit of money and you could come out with a pretty good salary. And the, the tra- you know, the, the magnitude wasn't quite as great. It, it certainly was that way. Well, I graduated uh, from college in 1982 and I had to pay for all of it myself. Um, and I got $20. My wife can vouch for that. But essentially, I had to pay for all of it myself. And that's when you could work in the summertime and maybe pay for a big chunk of the first semester, if not the whole semester, you know, work at Christmas time and through a lot of the holidays, um, as my brothers and I did. Uh, that, and then I walked out with a $10,000 loan after a four-year uh, education. Now, that was at 82. Um, and, you know, that was reasonable to me. But, you know, I you know, we hear our clients talk about what it used to cost to go to school compared to even when I, you know, if I talk about going to school, what it cost. Um, certainly, someone needs to tap, someone needs to have that conversation. Um, and that's why people might even think about uh, talking to their CPA or a financial advisor or financial planner and say, okay, here's here's kind of where we're headed. How, how much should we be borrowing here or not borrowing? Might might be worth it. But that's what you really get into 529s and college planning, Paul, is your kind of concept is it does take thoughtful planning, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's not a golden ticket just because you have a 529 plan. That's not going to allow you to just kind of wave all these issues away. I mean, it provides some help and puts some wind at your back, but the majority of the work is going to have to come from you putting in those contributions. So you really need to be deliberate about deliberate about that very early on. You really need a plan, don't you? I'd say, say so. You know, it's, it's another, and I know you guys do, uh, what you know, college funding plan you know our clients are retired but a lot of times they do want to help and and we're always asking them um, you know do you think your children's edu- your children's children will get the education your children got you know on their own or are they or do you wish to help a little bit and uh, a lot of times the answer is well if we can afford to do it and retire the way we want and many times you can and and so then you drill down into well ideally how much of it would you pay Generally, it's never more than, well, maybe ha- half of it, okay? But sometimes it's just, you know, I don't have a number. And it just, it's a conversation that we have a lot uh, with retirees. And uh, again, all, I was just getting back to, it's always a component of the planning process. It's, it's going to be here. That 18 years from now is coming tomorrow at a blink. Um, if you don't use the power of investing, and wise investing with, you know, certainly aligning your plan with the right returns you're going to require in order to get there in 17 or 18 years. So I, I like your and, thought that it's really, a, it's the planning. And just one more quick note on kind of grandparent funded 529 plans. One thing that I've just seen in practice is that a lot of times we have clients that especially once they're up quite a bit later in their life, you know, in their late 70s, early 80s, they get to the point where they don't need a lot of money to spend on themselves, and but they, they don't necessarily want to give it just outright to their children or grandchildren because they're worried they're going to spend it irresponsibly. You know, contributing to a 529 plan is a perfect solution for people. And like then that. there's and always it, just writing a check to the institution for the tuition mm-hmm. uh, is another, you know, smart way to do it as well. And I've just seen it. People really, it, it makes them happy and it makes them feel like, hey, all my hard work that I put in, during my life working, it kind of paid off. I was able to help my children and grandchildren. It's very meaningful to them. I found that that's probably of all the great planning issues that there are. Uh, that's certainly up there when I think of all the years and all the clients I've talked to in our preliminary conversations. That question of are your children's children going to get the education your children got is one that really sets them back and gets you can just see their mind ticking. And rarely is it yeah, they're going to be fine on their own. You know, you know, my son's, you know, doing really well. And my daughter's husband, and her, she's doing really well herself. Uh, rarely is that the case. And that kind of makes sense. Uh, most people 
don't have high paying jobs that can cash flow or even fund college all the way. And it's, it, ha it has become one of the more probably frequently used tools we have. As you said, if someone kind of gets into their 80s and they've amassed all this money, they've basically done everything they want. It's not over yet, but they're slowing down a bit. They're not going to travel as much. And actually, their estate can start getting larger and larger and larger. Uh, I know most people's problem is their, the fear of running out of money, but it gets back to what Paul was saying. If the proper planning and the proper strategy, a retiree can live the life they always dreamed of but the byproduct of a good plan uh, is going to probably be the ability to leave a legacy. However people value that or define that uh, certainly puts them in a position. And there are some really smart ways to help with this college funding or educational funding period. Uh, we have a couple more minutes left, guys. We were going to get into teaching children about money. I think we'll get into that next time, perhaps. Um, Anything else on educational about it in the next minute or two, and then I want to talk about our seminar. Any thoughts that uh, you, you think? Just give a concept. I know you guys have done the math, and this is one thing I did want to cover today. You take somebody who's just born today. If you wanted to fund it using your assumptions for rate of return, what are you finding that it would take on a monthly basis? On a monthly basis, I did it on an annual basis. Oh, that's fine. You can't, you know, there's such a wide range in just tuitions. Accept, just give me a... So I, I have to keep it really general yes, and say thousands, I, not hundreds, would be my recommendation. Thousands a year? At thousands per yeah, year. Yeah, I'm thinking... That, I you think know, your, your 5,000 range or something like that. Maybe Ryan in our office did it. I think he thought it was like 500 a month. Or... We Yeah, so I, when we ran an analysis for him, and it was based on pretty conservative assumptions... It ended up being about like seven thousand a year or seventy five hundred okay. a year. Yeah, so it was for a pretty a high probability. Now, don't forget that that starts out contributing a little Day extra one. because oh, okay. you're assuming that you might not get the greatest draw. So that will likely go down over time. Okay, I'm, just if you do the mental math, what's nine thousand times eighteen? You know, you're not going to need that much. It's just to be conservative in your planning, you need to start off assuming that, that you, you won't might get not favorable get a, returns. Exactly, which is just the same way we do it for retirement planning. Is saying, look, well, we don't know what returns are going to be. We kind of have to plan on returns maybe not being that favorable. And if they're more favorable, and they probably will be from a probability standpoint, we can back off that number and kind of rework the plan. Well, that's really good. I hope that was helpful for people today. I want to let people know we will be holding another, we will be holding another seminar on retirement planning. So we're going to cover the topic of retirement planning and retirement readiness. Uh, Wednesday, September 13th from 6.30 to 8 p.m. at our Rudy Wealth Learning Center at 2502 Galen Drive. We're gonna be talking, the whole Rudy Wealth Management team. Uh, Dave, I know you do a lot of it, and Paul, you help. We'll walk you through the challenging challenges facing those planning for retirement, the different decisions you have to make and how to approach them. I think the big things you guys are gonna cover are having reason, uh, reasonable expectations. And one of the big things you talk about is what's a reasonable withdrawal structure or withdrawal rate from my portfolio? And that kind of helps, you kind of help walk through the math of am I retirement ready? And I think, uh, it's been our most popular seminar by far. It generally, if not always, becomes booked pretty quickly. Um, we have a limited number of spots, and you can go online at rudywealth.com in our resources page, or you can give us a call at 356-1400. Again, that's going to be Wednesday, September 13th, 6.30 to 8 p.m. at our Rudy Wealth Learning Center. So that's Are You Retirement Ready? It's our workshop. Um, David is and Paul have put together and, this, and those are the ones that predominantly do it. They're both certified financial planning professionals and uh, they'll be running that workshop. I'll be there because they always like to have the old guy around, the, the people that come to it. There's always two or three questions where, well, I feel compelled to give an answer. So anyway, thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On The Money Radio Show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Money Talk. Tune in the third Thursday. Join us for the second and fourth <laughs> Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.
It's Illinois Volleyball on the road at Montana State against Gonzaga. 11 o'clock Friday morning, Dave Lone has the play-by-play from out west. CBS News, I'm Steve Kaif, and it's been a day of rescues in the Kansas City area.